Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. I was 19, and everything I did and saw was sharpened by being in London and in love. One of my favourite spots in the city was the Compendium Bookshop in Camden Town, with its eclectic range of books. And it was there that I acquired my copy of Robert Graves' The White Goddess. Now, let me be honest here. I could make little sense of the arguments put forward by Graves. Nevertheless, the book became a kind of talisman, touched by love and the magic of love. The fact that it was esoteric and almost incomprehensible added to its allure. And it was in The White Goddess that I first came across the idea that the 20 letters of the Ohm alphabet, with their strong stems and cross branches, were named after native trees, including alder, ash, birch, hawthorn, hazel, oak, rowan, willow and yew. What a magnificent litany, a whole language written in trees. The idea has shaped my perception ever since. Now, when I look upon the winter trees in their skeletal glory, written, as it were, on the landscape, I try to decipher their arboreal hieroglyphics. An old Irish poem in which Love Don, a fairy king, instructs King Fergus on the best firewood for the hearth, refers to the roan as the druid's tree and to the yew as sacred. In the medieval tale, Bula Swivna, Sweeney, the 7th century Ulster king, is cursed and becomes a creature half human and half bird. He endures hardship and bouts of madness, but it is when he is among the trees that his imagination takes flight and his eyes are open to the wonder and the beauty of the world. It is in the trees that he finds his poetic voice. It is no wonder that Lady Gregory wrote in 1898, Ireland, more than other countries, ought to be a country of trees, for the very letters of her alphabet are named after them. Lady Gregory loved the woods surrounding Cool Park, immortalised in the poetry of Yeats. She wrote of the companionship of the trees and the comfort they gave her. But these woods, like the woodland surrounding many of the great Irish houses, were not public spaces, but private grounds, reserved for the pleasure and profit of the owners, their family and associates. And trees were a luxury that few small farmers could afford. In the 19th century poem Kilcash, the cutting down of the forests deprives the tenants of firewood. Cadienamid fastig an aimed, todera na quilta erlor. What'll we do now for firewood, with the last of the forests cut down? Avondale, birthplace and home of Charles Stuart Parnell, is one estate where the forests were not cut down. In the second half of the 18th century, Samuel Hayes, a distant relative of Parnell and author of A Practical Treatise on Planting and Management of Woods and Coppices, 1794, laid out much of the woodland we enjoy to this day in Avondale. There is something noble and generous about planting trees whose splendour will only be seen by those who come after you. I give thanks to the vision of Samuel Hayes 
while cursing the centuries of neglect that saw the deforestation of Ireland's ancient woodlands. Trees feature not only in Irish poetry, but in many of the great literatures of the world. In the Aeneid, Book 6, it is the golden bough sheltered by an oak tree which allows Aeneas to visit the underworld in search of the shade of his beloved father. I love this story. In my local park, there is an oak tree, ancient, venerable and welcoming, in whose shade I like to sit and sip my coffee. In such a tree was the golden bough hidden. Imagine. I give thanks to this oak tree and the other trees that have enriched my life, a cherry, beautiful and flourishing in the late April sunshine of a Dublin spring, a linden, a magnet for bees when its fragrant flowers bloom in June, the privet hedge in the back garden long ago where with cardboard and old lino I made my hut. Here I hid myself away for hours in the long summers of my childhood. The hedge was my very own birdcage, my shady spot, my bower. My grandparents believed that the wind sighing through the yew tree in the local churchyard was the sound of the dead calling to the living. They respected fairy rings and wishing trees. We could learn from them. Given our climate crisis and the loss of biodiversity, we need to learn again the ancient language of trees. Lady Gregory was right. We ought to be a country of trees. We owe it to the planet and the future generations. And if we learned one thing from the COVID pandemic, it is the restorative power of being in nature. So like the 7th century Sweeney, King of Ulster, let us go to the woods and find our poetic voices. Let us be among the trees. At the end of our Leaving Cert year in 1976, just before we tackled the exams, the nuns in our school brought in a respectable married woman from another town to talk to us about married life. The talk was general and towed the party line on all matters regarding devils in the dance halls and lascivious, weak men who'd rely on us to keep them in check. She had an evident distaste for feckless types, fellows who were little better than corner boys. She was sure that we'd be setting our sights far higher. Her tone became quite conspiratorial and excited when she addressed one specific topic. Men in uniform. Believe me, girls, she enthused, professional livery holds a great attraction. She invited us to think about the men we knew who wore uniforms in the course of their work. She asked us to identify their professions and offer words that might describe their manly qualities. The only men in uniform I could think of was the postman puffing up the hill in his heavy navy serge or the school bus driver in his regulation blue shirt 
I began to wonder about the smouldering danger the butcher might be concealing under his mottled coat marbled with blood. Davy, our coalman, jute sacks around his waist, wore the uniform of a slave, bent double under the weight of the bags. The proprietor who drove the lorry never moved from the cab to help. He wore the uniform of the privileged, the soft hat, good sports coat, the crisp shirt and tie. Our local guard sported a uniform too, but a nil-fitting one minus a few buttons. I noticed this when he cycled to our house when word came, as expected, from Cashel Hospital that my father had died. Ye have trouble, he said, settling himself for a rest beside the fire. Get a drink for the guard, my mother prompted me towards the few small bottles of stout left over from Christmas. He waved away the offer, but nodded at the kettle. Nothing stronger than tea can pass my lips when I'm in uniform. My classmates and I were clearly at a loss to conjure up a vision of eligible uniformed men for our visiting speaker. She urged us repeatedly to identify the qualities of these imaginary creatures. Thinking again of the bus driver or sportsman, I chanced a few benign terms. Friendly, local, ordinary. Her nose wrinkled in distaste. None of us came near her charmed list by even thinking of the Brigadier General or Sergeant Major, the Commodore or County Surgeon. As she talked on, it became apparent that our respectable married woman was talking about these top brass, the officer class, the chaps who sported the stripes and gold braid denoting senior rank, decorated army men, high-ranking naval officers, pilots and doctors who combined romantic allure with daring and skill. They were the knights in shining armour who'd sweep to the rescue. Would they be Prince Charming when they shed that impeccable uniform? A husband sourced from the ranks of such men might need a little managing, our speaker instructed. Their domestic standards would be high. Did we have what it took to be the elegant, capable wives of such men? Could we entertain their fellow officers and make intelligent, though not heavy, conversation with the spouses? I had no idea how to locate and pursue one of these paragons of masculine perfection. But I did wonder if our speaker was right on one or two scores. I knew that my mother was seduced by not one, but two men in uniform. She kept lunchtime assignations with that saucy chap on the chef's sauce bottle, all done out in his kitchen whites. I'm sure she wasn't alone in falling for his dimpled cheeks and the slick of relish, rakish and jaunty on his chin. I've fallen for his attraction myself, and though the marketing people have reduced his image to a fragment of his former prominence, I'd allow no imposter to usurp his position. He's a decent sort, jolly and cheery and infinitely better than the starched, stuffed shirts I was urged towards in my youth. I didn't fall for the allure of the second fellow who won my mother's heart, though I know he held legions of women in thrall. He's the sailor on the packet of John Player cigarettes. Many women probably started to smoke because of the romance of this fellow's auburn beard and curly hair. 
I know that he spirited my mother's starboard on the first puff. I wonder what our guest speaker would have made of such vicarious romance with fantasy figures. Maybe we'd be excused on the basis that, though they were from the ranks of the lower orders, they were, admittedly, men in uniform. February the 12th is Abraham Lincoln's birthday, and in 1924, 100 years ago, his memory was celebrated in New York City by a concert of new American music commissioned by Paul Whiteman, the self-styled King of Jazz, which he was not, and played by his 23-piece orchestra in New York's Aeolian Hall. Back in 1924, the leading American songwriters were Irving Berlin, Richard Rodgers, Cole Porter, Jerome Kern, and George Gershwin. All except Porter came from the Middle European Jewish diaspora, elements of which tradition can often be heard in their music. Gershwin, however, stood out from the others in one respect. He was highly impressed and influenced by the music coming from African-American sources, mainly in New Orleans. He was greatly excited by the music of King Oliver, the original Dixieland jazz band, and especially the young trumpet sensation Louis Armstrong. Gershwin's ultimate tribute to this tradition came some years later with his opera Porgy and Bess. He composed the Rhapsody in about four weeks and handed it over to the great American composer and arranger Ferdé Grofet to be orchestrated. Grofet has become more famous for his symphonic pieces on the trail and the Grand Canyon Suite, but he loved the Rhapsody, and over the years he arranged it for several different musical lineups, including the symphonic orchestral version we hear to this day. Gershwin was only 26 years old at this time and had not mastered the art of orchestration, but he subsequently did, as you can hear in the Preludes, an American in Paris, and of course, Porgy and Bess. More importantly, he was to be the piano soloist for the premiere of Rhapsody in Blue. The concert itself was a sumptuous affair. The VIP part of the audience was graced by every musical celebrity in New York that week. They included the composer Igor Stravinsky, violinist Fritz Kreisler, and conductor Leopold Stokowski. And Ireland was well represented by composer Victor Herbert and our great tenor, John McCormack. There was one other Irish interest, however, the Rhapsody's opening is, as we know, as instantly recognisable as Beethoven's Fifth, with the solo clarinet glissando. Gershwin didn't actually write that. What he wrote was a chromatic run to the top B-flat. At the first rehearsal, Whiteman's clarinetist, Ross Gorman, played it as a sliding glissando, just for the crack. Gershwin loved it and said, keep that in. It resonated with him as a New Orleans-type wail 
and it has been a compulsory technical exercise for every clarinetist in the intervening century. Ross Gorman, with a name like that, has to be a true son of Aaron. The Rhapsody was received, well, rapturously. A standing ovation took place despite the fact that the Aeolian's heating system had failed in mid-concert, causing some less hardy audience members to slip away, thereby missing Gershwin's top-of-the-bill masterpiece. The rest, as they say, is history. The piece was recorded on a 12-inch 78-RPM recording, and to fit it all in, they had to play it faster, but it still sold a million. It became a staple in every concert hall worldwide, and most solo pianists have had it at one time or another in their repertoire. I even had a stab at it myself back in the day, but only in my own living room when everyone else was out. My favourite version of it is by Oscar Levant, who had been a friend of Gershwin and included a few of the maestro's improvised licks. Rhapsody in Blue became the Paul Whiteman Band's signature tune, and his catchphrase was, everything new but the Rhapsody in Blue. Reviews of the composition, though, were mixed. The day after its first performance in February 1924, the New York Tribune's Lawrence Gilman, who years later panned Porgy and Bess, harshly criticised the Rhapsody as derivative, stale and inexpressive. We musicians have an expression which might describe your man accurately. His ears are painted on. The British composer and critic Constant Lambert was not impressed either. He said the composer, in trying to write a Listian concerto in a jazz style, has used only the non-barbaric elements in dance music. The result being neither good jazz nor good list, and in no sense of the word, a good concerto. Leonard Bernstein, however, loved it. He said, you can play it in five minutes, eight minutes or 12 minutes. You can leave bits out or move bits around. You can play it on one piano or two with a 23-piece band with the banjo or with the symphony orchestra. Whatever you do, it'll always be Rhapsody in Blue and we love it. The fall of Charles Stuart Parnell, who brought Ireland to the brink of home rule in the late 19th century, has inspired stories, songs and poems. Here's Yeats from his poem Come Gather Round Me Parnellites. The bishops and the party that tragic story made, a husband that had sold his wife and after that betrayed. But stories that live longest are sung above the glass and Parnell loved his country and Parnell loved his lass. Parnell's lass was Catherine O'Shea. Their relationship scandalised society in 1890 when her husband, Captain Willie O'Shea, cited Parnell in his divorce suit against her. After the divorce, Parnell and Catherine married, but the notoriety ruined him, and he died within the year. More than 20 years later, in 1913, 
Nationalist MP William O'Brien wrote an article in the Cork Free Press alleging that Parnell had been conned, that the O'Sheas had used him to advance the captain's political career. Outraged by this allegation and seeking to show that she and Parnell had a long-lasting love, Catherine set about writing a memoir of her time with him. It certainly ruffled feathers, especially among old crores in the Irish Parliamentary Party. In 1890, they had bestowed on her the nickname Kitty O'Shea, Kitty being slang for prostitute, and had accused her of bringing a good man down. But now they read letters from Parnell where he offered to give up politics and run away with his own sweet wife, as he called Catherine from early on. It started in April 1880, when Captain Willie O'Shea was elected Nationalist MP for Clare. Since leaving the army, the feckless O'Shea had failed in all his ventures and the family was dependent on the patronage of Catherine's rich and elderly aunt, Aunt Ben. She provided a house for Catherine and the children in Eltham, on the outskirts of London, and also a flat for Willie in the city. By then, he and Catherine were living in amicable separation. Even though members of Parliament were not paid salaries at the time, she hoped that Willie had finally found something to interest him. So when he telegraphed that he had just voted for a new leader, Mr Parnell, Catherine resolved to meet this Mr Parnell and promote Willie. She presented herself to Parnell at Palace Yard on a sunny July day. That first encounter was momentous, she wrote. He came out a tall, gaunt figure, thin and deadly pale. He looked straight at me, smiling and his curiously burning eyes looked into mine with a wondering intentness that threw into my brain the sudden thought, this man is wonderful and different. As she was leaving, a rose fell from her bodice. Parnell picked it up, kissed it and placed it in his lapel. Years later, she found the rose pressed in an envelope with her name and the date on it. By October, the high and haughty Parnell was writing to her as my love. By December, it was my dearest wife. And by January 1881, it was my own wifey. Later, he began to call her Queenie, probably poking fun at his title of uncrowned King of Ireland. In April, they stole away to Brighton together. But Willie was hearing rumours and challenged Parnell to a duel. However, when reminded of the economic circumstances of scandalising the arch-conservative Aunt Ben, Willie dropped the challenge. Still, Parnell pursued her, and soon Catherine was pregnant. From Kilmainham Jail on Valentine's Day in 1882, he wrote, My dearest Queenie, take care of yourself and your king's child. Their daughter, Sophie Claude, born days later, survived only two months. By 1885, Parnell had brought his dogs and horses from Avondale to Eltham, and Catherine had a study and a private cricket pitch laid out for him there. The following year, the unpopular Captain O'Shea resigned from politics, but still did not initiate divorce proceedings. Now he was increasingly dependent on cash from Aunt Ben, 
who had changed her will, leaving everything to Catherine. When the old lady finally died in May 1889, Catherine was free to do as she pleased. She set up home with Parnell in Brighton. But her aggrieved siblings contested the will and sought Willie's support. On Christmas Eve in 1889, he filed for divorce. Neither Catherine nor Parnell contested it. Unchallenged in court, farcical images emerged of Parnell clambering down fire escapes, a gift to newspaper cartoonists. However, the revelation that he had by then fathered three of Catherine's children caused huge scandal. When Prime Minister Gladstone refused to negotiate with him as leader of the Parliamentary Party, the party cracked in a split that resonated well into the next century. By the time the Irish bishops had turned on him, Parnell was a very ill man. On October 6th in 1891, he passed away in Catherine's arms. They were just three months married. Hounded to death, his sister Emily said. He did not make any dying speech, Catherine attested as she launched her memoir in 1914, or referred to his colleagues and the Irish people, as was erroneously reported. The last words Parnell spoke were given to the wife who had never failed him, to the love that was stronger than death. Kiss me, sweet wifey, and I will try to sleep a little. Oh, have you been to Avondale or lingered in her lovely vale where tall trees whisper low the tale of Avondale's proud Planting Roses in Bai Cheng The six small old women wore working clothes, gloves, trousers, check shirts, army fatigues, patterned scarves over baseball visors, and one wore a white polka dot cotton bonnet. They were planting a bed of roses under birches in Bai Cheng City, as a youngish man handed down small rose bushes from a pickup truck. One thin, bow-legged old woman turned a curious, weathered face towards me and straightened up, and I wanted to ask her, a witness from inside history, about her girlhood, about her city or village and its happenings. For a full minute we were stilled in each other's gaze. What did she wonder? I come from a village on the other side of the earth. What happened there? And what did I know of it then? What do I know now? What could I tell her? It looks good to be out planting roses on a sunny street in old age. But what do I know? What do I really know?
He has given me the gift of seeing the shades in blue. The notion is a mother teaches the son and yet he has drawn out the colours. How blues can change with the ocean tides when the waters have reached their highest and it is safe to make a mooring. How the blue becomes tinged with shifting sands, subtle as a drifting breath. And it is time to lift anchor, leave before the shallow blues. Or the deep resonating blue when the heart and mind shaded into despair. He heard the message, I'm drowning, I need help. Gave me a gift, his hand reached out, showed a soul tempered in blue steel. Lessons in strength learned. The slow rising of spirits, light as bubbles out of the darker hues. He gave the gift of capturing a harvest moon. How to stand on a silent evening shore, camera tripoded, and wait until the river's blues turned to the tan of chamois leather and the moon, round as a howl, glowed orange. When that moment, the river, the moon, the clicks of the camera, the still concentration of my son standing beside me, fused into a luminous wonder. The gift of blue and green, the music, the idea, his passionate knowing how a coffee bean, small as a crumb, is green in its purest form, how the slow roasting brings a fruit flavour, brings out the bluest of a full-bodied taste, how a life can highlight so many tones, how a sun can draw out so many gifts, how blue can hold so many shades of joy. The Glance, after Pierre de Ronsard, Sonnets for Helen. The other day I saw you in Merrion Square, just walking through, you glanced towards my window. I was standing there, and felt as if a magnifying glass had concentrated sapphire light and lanced me, burnt my soul, printing you in my heart. It was a flash a lightning jag that fractures clouds and turns the world from dark to dazzle, enough to shiver me as if I had a fever. My saving grace lay in your moon-white hand. I saw it move, though I was blinded, frazzled, a flicker, 
a token of affection, saving me from the dance of pain and joy that you inflicted with your solar eye. On this morning's programme we heard Among the Trees by Kevin McDermott, Men in Uniform by Margaret Galvin, Rhapsody in Blue, The Irish Connection by Jim Doherty, and Parnell Loved His Lass by Lord Mackey, Planting Roses in Bai Cheng, a poem by Moya Cannon, Shades of Blue, a poem by Denise Blake, and The Glance, a poem by James Harper. The music was Full Circle, Cellos for Trees by Cleonani Eadon, Sailor's Hornpipe, Concertina Solo by Parry Music, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, the version recorded in 1959 by Leonard Bernstein and the Columbia Symphony Orchestra. Avondale, composed by James Galway and Paddy Maloney and sung by Donal Maguire. A traditional Mongolian limba flute piece by Niam Ansan. And See Through Blue by Beth Orton. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. You can find more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes on rte.ie forward slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio app or to the programme website, rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.